This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. On the crisp morning of May 14, 1993, Meryl Bahi, a 19-year-old Navajo competitive marathon runner, solemnly took a drive. He was traveling with his family through the southwestern region where New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah meet, famously known as the Four Corners of the United States. They were on their way to a funeral in Gallup, New Mexico. Days before, Bahi had been at an outpatient clinic for a fever and muscle pain, but now felt well enough to embark on this journey. An athlete, Bahi believed that no mere cold or flu could stop him from taking this trip. He'd prepared for countless races, but nothing could prepare him for what happened that day. During this 55-mile car ride, Bahi began frantically gasping for air. His skin yellowed, his lips and fingernails turning bluer by the second. By the time he arrived in the ER, it was too late. Bahi suffocated to death from acute pulmonary edema caused by excess fluid accumulating in the lungs. In other words, he drowned. Bahi's death was puzzling. Why would a physically fit young man die so quickly from a minor cold? As it turns out, Bahi's death was remarkably similar to several other fatalities in the same area. In fact, the funeral Bahi had planned to attend was that of his 21-year-old fiancée, Florina Woody. She died of nearly identical symptoms days before her husband-to-be passed away. Both deaths were sudden and unprecedented, and they were just the first two of an epidemic. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on the Hantavirus, an unexplained and deadly infection that first reared its ugly head in May 1993. At least, that's what researchers originally thought. As doctors began to investigate the disease, they soon found that it had a much longer history and had claimed many more lives than they'd ever suspected. This week, we'll dive into the origin of this puzzling epidemic that killed otherwise healthy victims at an alarmingly swift rate. We'll learn how the Southwest ecosystem impacted the spread of the illness and how researchers discovered the disease's connection to a much older virus. Next week, we'll explore how doctors scrambled to treat the deadly condition. We'll also explore how recent societal changes have increased the risk of exposure. Imagine spending your whole life practicing a healthy lifestyle. You eat balanced meals and exercise a few times a week. You take your vitamins and drink two liters of water daily. Maybe you meditate most mornings and get eight hours of sleep most nights. Sure, you color outside of the lines once in a while, but you enjoy temptation in moderation. A piece of chocolate cake, a dirty martini, or two. But then, one day, you find yourself suddenly short of breath. It feels as if your lungs are closing up. Within hours of being shuffled into an emergency room, you become just another body in the morgue. For 19-year-old Meryl Bahi and 21-year-old Florina Woody, this was their fate. Both Bahi and Woody lived in the small Navajo reservation village of Little Water, New Mexico. These star-crossed lovers had met and fallen in love at Santa Fe Indian School. Bahi was a star runner, while Woody, an athlete herself, managed the track team. Since graduating, the couple had gotten engaged and had a five-month-old son together. They seemed to have a bright future ahead. But then, over the course of a few days in May 1993, Woody and Bahi both experienced fever and myalgia, or muscle pain. Then, suddenly, their health took a sharp turn for the worse, ultimately leading to their deaths. Doctors refer to cases like this as a total enigma, Although a common fever and myalgia can be treated with pain relievers like ibuprofen and acetaminophen, Bahi and Woody's symptoms proved fatal, and pinpointing the cause of their illness was difficult. When the deaths were reported to the New Mexico Office of the Medical Investigator, the officer on duty, Richard Malone, was alarmed to learn that both partners had died in such a short period of time. Determined to find the connection between the two fatal illnesses, Malone secured the bodies for autopsies. This was a big case, so he reached out to Bruce Tempest, the medical director for the Gallup Indian Medical Center. While studying Bahi's and Woody's autopsy reports, 
Tempest recalled two other cases in recent weeks where young, previously healthy Navajo tribal members had died suddenly from a mysterious respiratory illness. As they say, once is chance, twice is coincidence, thrice is a pattern. Four deaths of the same nature felt like a freak occurrence. Tempest initially supposed that their illness could be a form of bubonic plague, a flea-borne disease that is occasionally found in New Mexico. According to the Mayo Clinic, the bubonic plague is a severe bacterial infection that's usually passed on to humans from fleas. It's caused by Yersinia pestis, an organism that thrives on small rodents in rural and semi-rural areas of Africa, Asia, and the United States. The rarest and most fatal form of plague damages the lungs. It's highly contagious and can spread swiftly from person to person. If left untreated, bubonic plague has a mortality rate of about 50%, often killing the host in a matter of days. Nicknamed the Black Death, the plague was one of the defining tragedies of the European Middle Ages and Renaissance. In a three-year period in the 14th century, almost one-third of Europe's population was annihilated by this contagious infection. After sweeping through Europe, the plague made its way to the United States, eventually sparking a rodent-borne outbreak in Los Angeles in the 1920s. Since then, there have been periodic instances of plague in the southwest desert of the United States, with up to 17 reported cases per year. Perhaps Woody and Bahi were the latest victims. The autopsy results seemed to fit. Their lungs were deeply damaged by what looked like an infection. However, tests on Bahi and another young Navajo man who died similarly came back negative for the plague. The results were also negative for common causes of pneumonia. All of the victims had died of the same cause, but investigators couldn't determine what it was. The evidence of infection in the lungs indicated that the germ was possibly airborne. However, the victims were all young and seemingly healthy. They should have been able to fight off the types of illness that caused respiratory failure. There were no mild cases of this mystery disease on record. All known cases resulted in a swift and sudden death. To make matters even stranger, Bahi and Woody's five-month-old son was not infected. This seemed peculiar. Why was their child left unscathed when healthy adults succumbed so quickly? Since the researchers didn't know how the disease was spread, they also didn't know who would be infected next. Malone and Tempest needed to act fast. So while Malone searched the state coroner's records for clues, Tempest spoke with clinical colleagues and physicians in the Four Corners area to find similar cases. As they continued to dig, other suspicious cases from the preceding few months appeared. More and more people had died of sudden respiratory failure, preceded by fever and myalgia. According to the Mayo Clinic, possible causes for fevers include a virus, bacterial infection, heat exhaustion, rheumatoid arthritis, a malignant tumor, and certain medications or immunizations. Fevers typically go away on their own after a few days, but they hadn't for Bahi, Woody, or the others. Every reported case of this mystery illness began with a fever and ended 
in death. The fevers were coupled with myalgia or muscle pain. Systemic muscle pain or soreness that radiates through the entire body is often caused by an infection, illness, or maybe a side effect of medication. With so many possibilities, the symptoms didn't help researchers narrow down their investigation. At this point, there was enough concerning information to notify the New Mexico Department of Health. After hearing the news, state officials wrote an open letter to clinicians in the Four Corners area. This announcement included a short description of the victim's medical reports and requested that all similar cases be disclosed immediately to the DOH. On a positive note, the letter proved effective. They collected a wealth of information on other related deaths. But there were some negative ramifications of presenting the mystery illness to the public. When the press reported that a deadly mystery illness was plaguing young tribal members throughout the Four Corners area, the general population panicked. Over the spring of 1993, the illness was cited as the Navajo flu in some newspapers, triggering a wave of prejudice against Native Americans. Navajo and Hopi tribe members were excluded and shunned. They were turned away from regional athletic events and public places. It was as if the country had taken 10 steps back since the civil rights movement. This fear of disease was infecting people's minds. To ease fears and get more answers, the government intervened. On May 28, 1993, New Mexico state health officials reached out to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They detailed what they knew about the illness and asked for help. Within hours, a team of CDC investigators organized. Jay Butler, an epidemiologist in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC, led the investigation alongside two of his officers. Butler's team traveled to the University of New Mexico for a meeting of the minds that included faculty, physicians, and state and federal health professionals. Over the course of a very long weekend, a medical brain trust was born. They finally had the resources to fight the illness. They just had to figure out what it was before it became an epidemic. Coming up, the researchers explore possible causes of the mystery illness. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And now, back to the story. In May of 1993, 
doctors observed an aggressively swift illness that targeted the lungs, typically preceded by a fever and myalgia. Within days, its victims were dead, and it was spreading across the American Southwest. Determined to save lives, the CDC organized a meeting of the minds on May 28th to try to diagnose it. Faculty, physicians, and state and federal health professionals from the University of New Mexico gathered with the epidemiology team at the CDC to discuss the possibilities. They began by laying out what they knew. Every case involved sudden death from pulmonary edema or excess fluid in the lungs. If pulmonary edema is not treated, pressure can rise in the pulmonary artery, leading to heart failure. The majority of the time, heart problems are the cause for pulmonary edema. But fluid can also build due to trauma from injuries, damage from smoking or sudden altitude changes, exposure to toxins, and viral infections. Since the majority of these sudden deaths involved young, healthy people, it was unlikely that the pulmonary edema stemmed from heart issues. So the Brain Trust looked into viral infections and exposure to toxins as alternate possibilities. More than 50 suspected pathogens and poisons were considered. Plague, tularemia, anthrax, chlamydia, legionella, mycoplasma, heavy metals, influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and herpes. The list went on. It was baffling. What kind of virus or bacteria flooded the lungs? After a lot of head-scratching and debate, the researchers deduced that the outbreak was likely the result of one of three possible causes. One, it could be a new, aggressive, and previously unrecognized type of viral influenza, similar to pneumonia. Two, maybe an environmental toxin. Many of the cases stemmed from the same agricultural area, which notably had poor climate regulation and a history of military weapons testing. Or three, the illness was sparked by an unrecognized type of hemorrhagic fever virus, a pathogen that causes high fever and leaking blood vessels. Spurred by these theories, the meeting attendees agreed to reevaluate any documented patient from January 1st, 1993 onward who had symptoms like those Bahi and Woody had experienced. On Tuesday, June 1st, the CDC dispatched 15 epidemiologists to the Four Corners area. They scoured and reviewed medical records procured tissue specimens for analysis, and spoke with patients and their families, as well as control groups that had not grown ill. They also inspected the infected patients' homes and workplaces and set up surveillance operations. They worked fast, but the disease continued to take its toll. Of the first 24 cases that were reported, half of the afflicted died. And the condition wasn't just infecting the Navajo tribe anymore. Other infections popped up in Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and California. Of the cases reported from December 1992 to June 1993, 14 patients were Native American, nine were Caucasian, and one was Hispanic. Doctors realized they were dealing with a very infectious virus. That discovery ruled out toxins as well as pneumonia. 
While some strains of pneumonia are viral, the symptoms are decidedly different from this condition's later stages. The one type that closely matched the mystery virus's progression, eosinophilic pneumonia, was caused by parasites or allergies. This left the third possibility that the medical professionals had discussed at their gathering in New Mexico, an unknown hemorrhagic fever virus, a highly infectious one at that. According to the CDC, viral hemorrhagic fevers represent a group of illnesses that attack multiple organ systems at once. Several different viral strains can trigger these conditions, which range from the mild to the vicious. Viral hemorrhagic fevers can alter organ systems, damage blood vessels, and inhibit the nervous system's regulatory functions. Hemorrhage, or bleeding, can also accompany these symptoms, but it's rarely life-threatening. Instead, their real risk lies in viral hemorrhagic fever's ability to shut down organs and induce comas. However, some viruses within the hemorrhagic fever bracket can cause severe, life-threatening diseases like Ebola or dengue fever. It all seemed to fit the strange affliction observed in Four Corners, but which hemorrhagic virus had caused the illness? C.J. Peters, chief of the CDC's Special Pathogens Research Branch, suspected the condition was one of two classes of rodent-borne agents. The first was the arena virus, taken from the Latin word for sand. The arena virus consists of New World, or Takaribi complex, and the Old World, or Lassa complex. These classifications are based on how the disease spreads. Some are specific to rodents from the Old World, or Europe and Asia, while others can be transmitted by animals native to the New World, or the Americas. A New World arena virus seemed like a promising possibility. Fever and myalgia were both common symptoms of many arena virus diseases, as were bleeding disorders and neurological issues. Another lab test narrowed down the search even more. Many of the victims taken by this mystery illness had a high white blood cell count. This was inconsistent with the symptoms of an arena virus, but did fit Peter's other theory, the hantavirus. Hantaviruses are a family of viruses that are mainly rodent-borne and can cause a variety of syndromes in humans. Like the arena virus, hantaviruses are separated into two categories. New World hantaviruses in the Americas, which can cause respiratory issues, and Old World hantaviruses, mostly found in Europe and Asia, which can cause hemorrhagic fever with renal syndrome. When a hantavirus infection begins, fluid leaks from the patient's circulatory system into the lungs. As the immune system registers the invasive agent, the white blood cell count tends to increase. Specifically, the body will produce atypical lymphocytes, white blood cells that fight off viral, bacterial, or parasitic infection. These immune responses, increased white blood cells and fluid pooling in the lungs, both matched the autopsy results from the deaths in the Four Corners. But the CDC ordered a test to be sure. 
On Friday, June 4, 1993, the Special Pathogens Branch at the CDC exposed these 25 stock virus samples to antibodies extracted from nine patients of the mystery illness. Antibodies are protective proteins created by specialized white blood cells to ward off disease-causing organisms. If an alien substance enters the body, a virus-specific antibody is produced to attack that virus and only that virus. The attraction is viciously magnetic. The antibodies from all nine patients reacted to three hemorrhagic fever viruses, all from the hantavirus species. None of the other 22 viruses tested produced results. This confirmed that the patients had been exposed to a hantavirus, resulting in hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. According to the Mayo Clinic, hantavirus pulmonary syndrome is a severe and infectious respiratory disease known for flu-like symptoms which can rapidly advance to life-threatening breathing issues. There are four phases of hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. First, incubation lasts two to three weeks. The virus enters the lungs via inhalation, and then it passes into the bloodstream. From there, the patient's circulatory system transports it through their entire body, including all their major organs. Usually, the patient has no symptoms at this stage. The second phase features a rapid development of fever, dry cough, body aches, headaches, diarrhea, and abdominal pain that can last two to eight days. Other possible symptoms are heart and lung failure, leaky blood vessels leading to the collection of fluid in the lungs, and internal bleeding. A lethal combination of these symptoms can lead to shock failure in the organs and possibly death. The third phase features alternating periods of high and low urine production, while the fourth and final phase can go one of two ways. Sometimes, after several weeks of sickness, the patient experienced a sudden and complete recovery. The resolution was almost miraculous. But the alternative outcome was death. The progression of hantavirus closely matched the mystery disease, but doctors couldn't treat it until they knew which form of hantavirus they were dealing with. They checked the patient's samples against three common strains, but each of those tests came back negative. Plus, some thought the hantavirus theory was a bit of a stretch. In the Western Hemisphere, hantaviruses were considered a rodent-specific disease. There were almost no reports of human infection. Finally, hantavirus didn't quite match the mystery condition symptoms. Hantavirus was known to target the kidneys, while all of the reported victims had died of lung damage. Though there were some inconsistencies, researchers hypothesized that the outbreak in the Southwest was due to an undiscovered strain of hantavirus that caused leakage in the lungs. Additionally, they learned that there were rare cases of human-to-human -human exposure to a type of hantavirus called Andes virus in Chile and Argentina. So it was possible that a new form of hantavirus could be spread from person to person. But if this was an entirely new pathogen, the physicians would have to start from scratch to learn how it worked. How could it be treated or cured? And how was it contracted? In the first reported case, 
Bahi and Woody's five-month-old son was never infected. There was no evidence whatsoever that it could be spread between human hosts. So how were people getting infected? The medical professionals in New Mexico weren't the only group searching for answers. Navajo medicine men also assembled in Window Rock, Arizona, to discuss the mysterious outbreak. Ben Munetta, a physician trained at Stanford and in the CDC's Epidemiology Intelligence Service and who worked for the Indian Health Service, was in attendance. Munetta represented the bridge between the western side of epidemic control and the traditions of the Navajo people. His grandfather was a medicine man and encouraged him to have an open mind. When speaking to this group, Munetta informed them of the status of the CDC's investigation and asked for their prayers. The medicine men told Munetta there is a great disharmony in the world caused by people straying away from traditional practices. When there is disharmony in the world, death follows. That stuck with Munetta. What kind of disharmony? Munetta continued to ask questions about what the medicine men knew, and together they made a startling connection. This epidemic wasn't the first of its kind. In 1918 and 1933, there were very similar outbreaks, seemingly sparked by unpredictable weather, unusually severe winters followed by unbridled spring rains. The onset of deaths began in the wintertime. And the medicine men had a theory about the cause of the disease. The pinion trees had produced more pine nuts than ever before, and as a result, Mice, who thrive on pine nuts, reproduced tenfold. The medicine men believed that mice could be spreading this puzzling pathogen. Munetta was shocked. The top scientist of his day had been beaten to a solution by a group of medicine men with no formal training. Now, all he had to do was convince the medical community that their hypothesis was worth exploring before the rodent-borne illness could take any more lives. Coming up, Dr. Munetta brings the medicine men's findings to the CDC. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, back to the story. In 1993, the CDC's Dr. Ben Munetta learned that Navajo medicine men suspected mice of spreading a virus that had swept through the Four Corners region of the United States. In Navajo culture, the mouse is an important, complicated figure. He manifests growth by spreading seeds, 
but he's also feared as the bearer of disease. As one legend goes, this tiny critter decides to punish the healthiest and youngest of the Navajos when he sees food being wasted in the hogan, or home. The mouse senses the wasted food and brings the curse of disease to the wasteful child. In other legends, mice serve as spies for witches because they're able to fit through tiny holes in the home virtually unseen. Other stories claim that mice burrow into the ground to steal from graves. They're dangerous, often a sign of fearful doom to come. Some Navajos even burn clothing if a mouse scurries over it. The hypothesis that mice were spreading the Hanta virus was an intriguing one. But before they could put rodents on the stand, the CDC had to find test subjects. A trapping team was dispatched to New Mexico. Sporting gas masks and surgical garb, rat trappers surveilled patients' homes, caught mice, and processed their blood and tissue specimens. Roughly 1,700 rodents were tested at patient and control sites. Amongst the most common was the deer mouse. It was quite a spectacle. Munetta said the sight of these people in moon suits walking around their prairie dog holes and their hogans, it was a curious sight, to say the least. The little kids were laughing. It was like something out of a science fiction movie. Back in the labs, scientists were extracting virus genes from victims and comparing the genetic makeup with that found in the rodents. They counted the number of nucleotides, the building blocks of DNA. These nucleoids are matched like twins in a design called base pairs. Sure enough, within four days in June 1993, scientists found an identical virus base pair sequence. 30% of analyzed deer mice carried the same strain. Thomas Kaizak, chief of the diagnostic section of the CDC's Special Pathogens Branch, confirmed in a statement, it was exactly the same virus that was found in the initial patient. That closed the circle. Finally, after weeks of investigating, the CDC had an answer. Rodents were the culprit for a new strain of hantavirus. But how did humans get exposed? It was simpler than one might think. When a mouse defecates, the waste dries into dust particles. Then, those particles are swept up into the air. Humans are exposed to hantavirus by accidentally inhaling rodent saliva, urine, or droppings, usually while living in an infested home, camping, or spending time in rural areas. And while the hantavirus is typically airborne, it can spread other ways. A rodent carrier can bite a human host. A person can also accidentally consume food that has been contaminated by droppings, urine, or saliva from an infected rodent. In the case of Meryl Bahi and Florina Woody, they may have been exposed while running on remote paths. That would also explain why their five-month-old baby escaped infection entirely, He was too young to go on trail runs. Finally, researchers had a theory that fit the evidence. The next step was to learn everything they could about how the infection worked in order to devise some kind of treatment. And of course, they had to come up with a name. Initially, the CDC wanted to call this new pathogen the Muerto Canyon virus 
after the location on the reservation where the initial outbreak was thought to begin. However, the Navajo people didn't want to be associated with a disease, especially after the initial prejudice following its first introduction to the public. The tribal elders asked officials to reconsider, and their request was granted. The virus was officially named the Sin Nombre virus, Spanish for the virus with no name. Though the virus was finally identified, some questions remained. Why was there an outbreak in the Four Corners region? And why in the spring of 1993? A team of biologists at the University of New Mexico looked into the ecological factors. A winter marked by El Nino rainstorms meant that springtime vegetation flourished thanks to increased soil moisture. And in turn, this excess plant life provided shelter and food for the animals of that region. That means more seeds, nuts, berries, and insects that wild animals could eat. Thus, there was a substantial spike in the mouse population, followed by increased human exposure to the rodent-borne virus. In certain areas of New Mexico, there can be over 6,000 deer mice per square mile. And when food is abundant, a female can give birth to four or five litters a year. With crowding and competition, mice are likely to bite or mark territories with their urine, which only spreads the infection. Hantavirus doesn't harm or kill mice, so the virus only spreads with each mouse it infects, as opposed to many other viruses, which quickly kill their hosts and die with them. And when the rodent population is so dense, humans are more likely to cross paths with infected mice. Once the Sinombre virus was identified, researchers tested the preserved tissue samples of other people who had died of sudden and undiagnosed respiratory complications. They traced it back to many earlier mysterious deaths, including the death of a 38-year-old Utah resident in 1959. This confirmed the Navajo medicine men's assertions that the rodents had served as carriers of the very same virus in years prior. After the breakthrough, panic over the Sinombre virus subsided. However, that didn't mean there was nothing to worry about. In fact, the cases of hantavirus pulmonary syndrome increased fivefold in the same area five years later, in 1998 and 1999. There were also reports of other victims taken by the hantavirus after 1993, victims who hadn't traveled to the Four Corners area at all. Warnings to travelers did little to stem the tide of diagnoses and deaths. Given how common field mice are, it seemed impossible for the public to entirely avoid exposure to the Sinombre virus. This was especially true as climate change threatened to bring more wet winters, spikes in the area's rodent populations, and more hantavirus deaths. In 1993, the disease was still relatively rare in the United States of America. But by the dawn of the 21st century, it was poised to become an existential threat. Unless doctors could find a way to cure it or treat it. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with our second and final episode on the Hantavirus. 
will follow scientists as they rush to find a cure, or at least a way to slow the spread of infection. We'll also explore how shifting weather patterns have made hantavirus an increasingly dire threat in an era of climate change. You can find more episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Medical Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jacqueline Donabedian, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.